I'm I'm in an actual closet. George washing machine carver behind George you. George washing machine. <laughs> Uh, on that note, our apologies. We are told that last episode, the network did not appreciate our culturally insensitive use of saran wrap. In light of this error on our part, we are donating all the proceeds from this episode to Kitchenware Anonymous. Shall we? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me. The things. So I thought this time we would talk about some mother loving UFOs. Go on. Yes. And something even more rare a man of science who was willing to change his mind. Or just that's, a person in general willing to change their mind. Uh, okay. I. That's a good tagline, but I disagree with the core concept. We're off to it. a great start. <laughs> you're like fuck you fuck fuck curse on your cow a curse on you i um okay to me obviously i agree that people the good scientists are the ones that when presented with evidence change their minds the good scientists are scientists and the bad scientists are propagandists who masquerade as scientists and are not are you familiar with joseph allen hynek Hell no, I'm not. Fuck yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I was worried you would, you are, would already have known everything about him, and I'm so excited that I get to tell you about oh, him. Oh, Ja? I know all about him. Ja? <laughs> ja rules science? <laughs> Joseph, oh, dear. Right, don't facepalm at me. The people can't see the facepalms. Joseph <sighs> one of the first people to conduct scientific analysis on what he believed to be UFOs little backstory as we always do he was born in chicago 1910 uh in his career in higher education once he got there um focused on astronomy including the study of stellar evolution which you probably already knew this i did not know this it's just the life of stars also randomly as a civilian scientist during world war ii he helped develop the navy's radio proximity fuse which is Apparently, there are just different types of fuses in regards to things that go boom. So there's like a contact fuse that goes boom when you touch it, timed fuse that goes boom at at a certain time, and he did the proximity fuse. So just a thing that goes boom when you get within a certain distance, which I don't like because I don't like violence, and it increases the lethality by five to ten times. So that's not great, but I thought I'd mention it because I think it's interesting that both he and the guy I talked about last time both contributed something to the Navy, but otherwise seemed relatively not assholes. Anyway, not that the Navy is assholes. I just mean violence is asshole. I'm pretty sure everyone in the Navy has an asshole. We can't prove that. And I won't try. I think I was just not sensitive to the one or five or however many people in the Navy don't. I know, right? But I just... Everyone has an asshole. That was my assumption. Anyway. Joseph Allen Hynek, J. Allen Hynek, he was later in charge of directing the tracking of an American space satellite via the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. These are just like cool things he's done before we get to the really cool stuff. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. My reading vaguely references that um, this work with the Smith Smith 
Smithsonian included in part Operation Moonwatch, which was apparently the largest single scientific undertaking in history because it was a collective of citizens and scientists across the world working together to study and track satellite activity. Cool. Yeah. So that's like a little side note thing. Anyway, uh, after numerous reports of, and I quote, flying saucers, the Air Force established Project Sign and brought our boy Hynek on as a scientific consultant to determine whether found phenomena were naturally occurring astronomical objects or, you know, unidentified ones. Project Sign later became Project Grudge, which is creepy as fuck, and then Project Blue Book, which sounds like a hopefully less racist version of Green Book. No one knows. He arrived at the program with a healthy- It's entirely about used cars. It's about a used car teaching Vigo Mortensen the meaning of friendship. It's about a used car teaching Vigo the power of not having a white savior complex. Correct. It's about a used car teaching Mahershala Ali about his own culture. And how to give women lines in movies. Do women have lines? Do women speak? Jury's still out. Do women have assholes? Do women have? They're called husbands. Right. 1950s joke. What's the 1950s equivalent of an air horn? Is it like a, like a. It's a polite clap. (laughs) (laughs) It's a golf clap. Okay, we're going to continue. So he arrived at the program with a healthy skepticism of UFO reports claiming the subject was utterly ridiculous and a fad. So this is really interesting because this dude has a full character arc. He enjoyed his role as a debunker, which according to his book is actually what the Air Force expected him to do. And he even went so far as to encourage a uh, public relations campaign to reduce public interest in the matter and to disrepute the field of UFO studies entirely. So he was actively like, UFOs are bullshit. Everyone needs to know they're bullshit. They're not real. Everyone sit the fuck down. But despite his naysaying, reports continued to trickle in from civilians and law enforcement and um, especially from military pilots. And those reports in particular and just the amount of reports began to puzzle Hynek deeply. And he had a, a bit of a crisis. And I I pulled this quote because I thought you, Greg, would appreciate this. He said, as a scientist, I must be mindful of the lessons of the past. All too often it has happened that matters of great value to science were overlooked because the new phenomenon did not fit the accepted scientific outlook of the time. That's real science right there. That's what I'm fucking saying. So I guess that's what I meant when I made that earlier sweeping broad generalization is that I think that there are that there, there's not just in science, in any industry, there are uh, a majority of people who I think want to say, this is my frame of reference for everything and anything, you know, confirmation bias, anything that doesn't fit is just, I'm just going to say is pseudoscience is, is not, you know, because, because it doesn't fit with my definitions of, or what I understand. In, in my opinion, a true scientist hopes to be proven wrong because that is what revolutionizes whole fields. Absolutely. I yeah. love that. I love, I love that statement. So 
as a result, his opinion began to change. Partially, he would say, because of the attitude of the Air Force themselves and the fact that they, and these are his words, wouldn't give UFOs the chance of existing, even if they were flying up and down the street in broad daylight, <laughs> which is an image I love. He said, everything had to have an explanation. I began to resent that, even though I basically felt the same way. So I think I, that fascinates me that he, he also didn't believe that they existed, but almost this like it's almost a teenager attitude of like oh you agree with me fuck you dad air force dad i'm thinking about when you show a mirror to a bird and it yeah. tries to fight itself sure, sure 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 it's like confronted with his own mentality he realized he hated it yeah thanks i hate it <laughs> we've all been there <laughs> uh so and this uh I, we already kind of touched on this but this school of thought in my eyes is largely what makes him a good scientist like you're saying the the willingness to be and the, the excitement about getting proven wrong that even if he didn't have sufficient evidence he'd keep his mind open to possibilities of that which mm -hmm. he didn't understand or didn't mm -hmm. fit his his current definitions um and because on a personal note, this is how I wish we'd approach all science, including fields considered pseudoscience, such as the paranormal, with the notion that it might be real and we just don't understand it yet. So though he worked with what eventually became Project Blue Book for roughly 15 years, <clears throat> he increasingly publicly disagreed with them and even expressed disappointment in the Air Force. He even noted one reference to them as the... <laughs> Society for the Explanation of the Uninvestigated, which is the most academic shade I've ever heard, and I love it. It's like the fanciest, like, pinky out, fuck you. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah. And I want a shirt that says That's it. That's very refined salt. That's what I, exactly, exactly. That is, like, from the mountaintops. Mm-hmm. He expressed his doubts publicly at the MUFON, which I didn't need to say that way. Um, it stands for a mutual UFO network. I just like that it's MUFON. It's like a muffin, but but different. Uh, it's the... <laughs> it's, 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 <laughs> I think that's my cold open. It's I like a muffin, but different. But different. <laughs> different dads! Yeah. Just I love like it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I trust your judgment. Sorry, MUFON is. Uh, MUFON is not a muffin, but the oldest and largest organization of its kind. <laughs> they had a symposium. Did they have free muffins there? No one knows. I wasn't alive. <clears throat> he presented his thoughts to the um, International UFO Congress, something I didn't know existed. He said, there are stars that are millions of years older than the sun. There may be a civilization that is millions of years more advanced than man's. We have gone from Kitty Hawk to the moon in some 70 years, but it's possible that a million-year-old civilization may know something that we don't. I hypothesize a technology encompassing the mental and material realms. The psychic realms, so mysterious to us today, may be an ordinary part of an advanced technology. And I love that quote because it just highlights how exempt he is from the, or, or how much he grew from his own original human hubris, which you and I have talked about. We talked about in New Zealand about the fact that if other life knew about us, they would be smarter than us to not let us know that they knew <laughs> or, or to pop in and see what we're doing and then peace out and let us, you know, wait a couple 
million years, if that, 100,000 years and let us destroy ourselves and then they can come back and do whatever they want. I don't know. That's a whole I mean, other if, conversation. Yeah, if they wanted to colonize this planet. I mean, right. there's the whole... Colonize that you bring up an interesting point there too, because I think part of man's humankind's mentality about uh, other life is that we seem to think that it would treat us the way we treat each other. And that's also not necessarily the case. So like with the colonization thing, like us assuming that aliens would be, would be as violent as we are, or would even have the desire to colonize us just because that's how we are. They wouldn't other beings, if they have any sort of sense of, um, camaraderie or community wouldn't be like that, wouldn't be like us. Or might. Or might. Hi, Nick. Eventually, wait, I'm sorry. Were you about to say something else? I guess I, when it comes to the notion of like differences between animals versus similarities between them when it comes to behavior, mm-hmm. I prefer to edge on the side of similarities because so often people are like humans are different from and therefore better than the rest of the animal kingdom and i think that's untrue i also think i obviously agree (laughs) like all of all of what we consider vices within ourselves if you were to anthropomorphize animals they're they're all guilty of all the same shit that we do but oh, yeah. they're also like by the same virtue have all of all of what we consider to be virtuous you know and mm-hmm. no i agree even on a dna level we're more similar than different so with behavioral similarities i wonder you know would aliens would they be innately more considerate than we are as a species or would One they would hope <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because because we're also that conversation compares creatures that have all evolved on the same planet big ball of rock yeah yeah and the same galaxy even mm. or you know so then it's yeah this is definitely a longer very interesting conversation um and can branch off in all sorts of directions um about animal behavior and how we study ourselves and other creatures and therefore creatures that we can't even really conceptualize or you know or can only conceptualize so Hynek eventually founded the center for ufo studies which is still around uh, which advocates for scientific analysis of ufo cases their extensive archives include files from civilian research groups such as the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena or NECAP. 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 NECAP and high neck. Hey. There's a theme. He brought a scientific rigor to ufology not often found in other aspects of counterculture phenomena. And that's one of the reasons that he's so well respected is that he he wasn't, you know, like, I held this crystal and now I'm better. He like was rigorous about looking for evidence and considering all possible answers. Mm-hmm. And having hypotheses and approaching this, this, these studies with a scientific mindset. Uh, he also published several books, which I think I mentioned um, in the first one. So this is what's getting to the high neck scale, which is what I originally wanted to talk about. 
In the first book, he established that which brought me to the subject matter, which is the high neck scale, or as he referred to it then, the close encounter scale. And yes, not only did he act as a consultant to Spielberg's film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but he also apparently makes a fucking cameo appearance in the film. Do you have a screen grab? I don't, but the description is that uh, he can, well, I'm sure, actually, you know what? That's a good idea. I could probably look it up. At the end of the movie, after the aliens disembark, he can be seen viewing the spectacle with a pipe in his mouth. Wow. Yeah, which is a whole fucking vibe. Uh, so let's dive into the high neck scale real quick. Um, oh, before we do that, Heineck and his wife Miriam Curtis had five children. Oddly enough, his son Joel is an Oscar winning visual effects supervisor. To play us out, here are the levels of high neck scale nocturnal lights, which are lights in the night sky, as you may have guessed, daylight discs, also self explanatory. Radar visual, which are UFO reports with radar confirmation. Close encounters of the first kind, which are visual sightings seemingly less than 500 feet or 150 meters for people who are raised in a society. Wait. Uh, that makes sense. Wait, the fourth thing on the scale is close encounters of the first kind. So zero, negative one, negative two. I listen. <laughs> yeah, you take this up with the de a dead man, okay? Well, I think you will. I, I will. I have a I, shovel. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> I think the I think that the, the thought process is that those first three, the nocturnal, daylight, and radar visual, are three ways of examining spacecraft that are far enough away that it's not considered an encounter. It's just like a sighting. Ooh. That's a far encounter. And then yeah. we have the close yes, encounter. Yes, yes, yes. There's got the it, got socially it. distant encounters of the first, second, and third kind. And then we have close encounters. So the, uh, the first kind is a visual sighting that is seemingly less than 500 feet or 150 meters away. Close encounters of the second kind is a UFO event in which a physiological effect is alleged, such as electronic interference, animal reactions, a form of physical discomfort in the witness, chemical traces, scorched or otherwise affected vegetation, or trace impressions in the ground. So close encounters of the second kind is like, <laughs> am I paralyzed? Is there a weird track mark in the dirt? Is my cucumber fried? Like, you know, any of those things. Close encounters of the third kind is, are encounters in which an animated entity is present as an occupant or pilot of said UFO. So all of everything on the scale except for the third kind is just about the spacecraft itself. The third kind is like seeing another being. Um, that is the Hynek scale and the story of ufologist Bay, J. Allen Hynek. Okay, tell me, tell me a thing. Let me tell you a thing. I would love to hear a thing. So there's a small preamble. Okay. This is, this is a callback to our Space Scorpions episode. Okay. You told me about what sort of mouse was it? It was the, um, the fucking grasshopper mouse. The, um, yes. Hold on. Hold on. The, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the grasshopper mouse. Why was I doubting mm -hmm. myself? That's exactly yes. what it was. Yes. 
you opened with, I hope you don't know about this. Yes. And you were like, mouse. And I was like, an African mouse, perhaps? And you were like, no. And I was like, I'm going to tell you about this mouse. That's right. I remember this. The time has come. The time so. has come. And we've switched. We've switched because now I'm talking about space and you're talking about a mouse. Yeah. And oh, the tables have turned. Oh, the turntables. Oh, the turntables. The African spiny mouse. Spiny? Spiny. Okay. Yeah. The, so the African spiny mouse, they can have 90% of their skin torn away by a predator and they can regrow it with no scarring. What? Your face said it all. I just farted out of nervousness. <laughs> Isn't that insane? And yes. and so they can regrow, they can regrow muscle tissue and mostly the really interesting thing to scientists is they can regrow their skin in a, where, in a way where there's no scarring and their hair grows back, which is something that, you know, we don't do. No, not at all. Have we studied them for stem cell research? We're studying them in, we're in the interest of treating... Burn victims? Burn victims and laceration victims, et cetera, I would et cetera. Hope so. The scientist... The most publicized scientist that I found studying this uh, is named Ashley. And I was like, uh, Jenna's going to love this badass female scientist. It's who's not a woman. like, is it? It's not. It's a man. <laughs> but but the, photo, the photo of this researcher was them wearing a homemade mouse mask. They're like obsessed with this mouse. That's kind of horrifying yeah it's kind of creepy and like originally endearing but what i'm also picturing is like the head that dead mouse the dj wears but made of like paper mache like a really low-fi version made of like flesh um picture like it's not cardboard it's probably laser cnc'd like balsa wood okay. so it's angular Oh. but it's shaped like the head of an African spiny mouse. Sure. And that is their like image that is uh, like attached to their email as well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so you emailed them. I didn't hear back. They're researching the African spiny mouse. Uh, they learned that they're trying to understand how it regrows in this way and they don't have a full understanding of it mm -hmm. and their research coincides with the research of several other scientists which brings us to animal number two oh. the axolotl gesundheit wait do you not know i i've heard that name before probably out of your face mm. the axolotl is going to be one of your new favorite animals okay it looks like it's smiling always horrifying it, its closest living relative is a salamander they they have a property to them where they maintain their infant stage it's called neoteny neoteny maybe neoteny no one other knows. other salamanders 
um, lose their aquatic gills and they grow up. These guys don't. They remain, though they mature sexually, they remain immature in every other way. Do you feel seen? <laughs> Mm -hmm. I love you. <laughs> uh, that's just, that's really funny. Okay. And also alarming. So they're infantilized salamanders, basically. They're in, let me find a photo of one. Infantilized for you. Mexican salamanders. That's what axolotls look like. They're so cute. My God, they're so cute. No. Oh, it's so cute. They're adorable, aren't they? Oh my gosh. They look like they're going, Wah. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay, so. Uh, Here's what's really amazing about them. They can, when they are young, regrow entire limbs. Um, entire halves of their bodies holy fuck eyeballs oh my god brain what i was wondering what the connection was going to be between the axolotl and the um spiny mouse these are both um, motherfuckers these are both animals with spines that have regenerative properties that are extremely interesting to scientists yeah um, I would fucking think so. There's a behavioral link. So with axolotls, they eat their own young the moment they hatch. And they believe that that behavior and their ability to grow is somehow related. Right? Like if you, upon being born into this world, get half of you bitten off sure. and you can just you gotta continue to be fine with no scarring, no physical scarring from that event at all. Yeah, no, that evolutionarily, that makes sense to me that it would be like, I'm only going to survive if I can regrow the half of my brain that my mom ate. <laughs> oh, dad got my eyeball better. Keep, keep on keeping on and uh so we what's really interesting about axolotl research to me is that we don't fully understand how it works sure but scientists have been able to make it happen so it's not there's not a like full understanding of it but there is an ability to manipulate it so scientists have been able to make axolotls grow extra limbs, for example. Oh, shit. They've been able to um, stop or stimulate the regrowth process. And through, through all of this research, they've been able to determine that it has something to do with something called a blastema. So they get a wound and then cells nearby migrate, like stop being whatever sort of cells they are and migrate to it. Holy shit. And, and become like uh, 
less defined. So it's it's as though they take cells that have already been defined, no longer stem cells, and then they create something stem cell-like out of those. Huh. <laughs> it's crazy. This, this is fucking bonker. Yeah, there should be much more money into researching these two creatures because we could help so many people if we understood how these things work. Well, I'm not sure, like, this is where I was a little insecure about bringing this topic forward. It's like, where do you stand on the ethics of experimenting on these animals? Mm. Depends on what the experiments are. Uh, you know what I mean? Because if they can regenerate shit, then you're not like hurting them. But you're not hurting them any worse than their fucking own mother. <laughs> right. But <laughs> you know what, what about mean? what about the one where you give it an extra limb? I guess you could just trim that off. Yeah, yeah. I'm honestly, I don't think I know enough <laughs> to even have an opinion about it. Like, uh, I'm against animal cruelty, but if you're just making the animal do what it does anyway. Well, but, but in a more controlled setting, that's not. I'm gonna get vegan hate mail for this. Do you want? Do you want the upsetting one? Well, now I'm. Now I have. Now I have to know. So Ashley, the scientist, the <laughs> researcher I mentioned, not a woman. <laughs> um, one of one of his experiments is testing comparative force to remove the skin from different species of mice. Oh, I don't like that. What is but the point of that? But it's information that's necessary in order to understand the African spiny mouse. Is it? In terms of just like, how hard do I have to pull before your face comes off? In terms of why is it that, <laughs> what makes this mouse different from all other mice? <laughs> okay, Bubby. <laughs> this one's for nice. Bubby. I'm glad you caught it. Um, okay. Uh, what else do I need to tell you about axolotls besides them being adorable and having the badass ability to regrow their effing brains yeah, and eyeballs? Insane. Yeah, see, I, I think also with the, the animal experimentation proclamation conversation mm -hmm. i mm -hmm. think the other aspect of that is what how how would we be studying it and then what would we use it for because i could also see us doing some fucked up shit with that sort of knowledge so but those would be the two questions i would ask because i you know certain things outweigh the benefit like the benefits outweigh you know mm -hmm. The ends justify the means. So, like, yes, that's a nicer way of saying what I was struggling <laughs> to get out of my mouth hole. So, if we have the capacity to, in 50 years, allow a human to regenerate an arm that is fully their own and yeah. is similar to what it once was, sure, or allow yeah. someone with Parkinson's the ability to regenerate their brain, yeah. it would justify the many generations of lab axolotls that we have 
I think so. Cut I mean, it's, open it's, it's tricky. I do think so, though, because I think yeah. you could, like you're saying, that it could apply to so many different diseases. And I think it's also, you know, the difference is they're not testing fucking shampoo on them. You know what I mean? I should hope but there but we'd be test we'd be testing things that could have immeasurable positive impact rather mm. than rather than cosmetics or you know all of the millions of animals that we killed just to get fat on so it's like you know that I can see as being more justifiable I think I think yeah you know it's not cut and dry so it's a it's a lesser evil that also has positive effects as an outcome. Yeah. And so I think so. Definitely more tolerable than other issues. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Um, Was there more you you were going to say about the uh, two more things, two more things about the axolotl. One, okay. its genome is larger than the human genome. Um, and was only recently sequenced. Well, explain that to me like I don't know what a genome is, <laughs> hypothetically. Okay. Um, <laughs> so our, our DNA um, is pairs of nucleotides that are attracted to one another. Sure. Um, and our personal genome is, I think, like... Th- Three million. Weird flex, but okay. That's what I. That's what I think it is. I don't know. I can look it up. No, before, don't, like, don't need to, we don't need to. We don't need to get into the weeds on that. I'm not. It's not. But but like the idea is are the. The genetic like code, the blueprint that makes you is a certain number of molecules I long should have and said it's three billion within the, the same average for almost all humans. Base okay. pairs for axolotls, it's ten times as long molecule by molecule. So they're there's just so small. They're smaller than us, but their DNA contains more information than ours. Well, I wonder if that's because they have the need to like pop off a new arm if they're having a bad day it's like you got to have all that extra is an actual word it was the word of the day the other day i thought it was just a fucking colloquialism it's an actual I've, word i've just heard you say it so i was like it's a word bouncing it back to you that's amazing yeah, yeah. it's spelled z-h-u-z-h or something stupid might be spelled differently, but it's a word. It's a word. I promise. Anyway, um, yeah. So that's that's crazy. What's the last one? Uh, the majority of axolotls that exist on the planet come from twenty-four axolotls that were collected by a French biologist at around the turn of the twentieth century. <laughs> what? So they're all inbred <laughs> as fuck. They're, so all the axolotls the, are inbred? The majority of axolotls are inbred lab axolotls because the lake near Mexico City is being used to fuel the population growth of Mexico City. So this is some this is some chemical spill 
something where it's like the whatever's in the water in Mexico City. <laughs> axolotls. Wait, were axolotls like this before? Mm-hmm. So they were always like we didn't we didn't accidentally GMO axolotls to be right. Okay. Oh, here's here's the other crazy fact I remember. Um, let me let me get this right. They are named after a sneeze. Um, wait, wait, a cat wait. Lying on a keyboard. Uh, they're named after an ancient Aztec god, Xolotl, who was the god of fire, lightning, sickness, and deformities. He was <laughs> the god of deformities. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> He was de- he was depicted as a dog-like creature and was tasked with dragging the sun through the underworld at night. He decided to transform himself into an axolotl, the, the salamander-like creature, to elude capture by other gods. So we traded. You did, like, researched historical science thing. And I did a bunch of facts about two awesome animals. Yeah, we totally traded. That's amazing that we were just yeah, on yeah, the yeah. same wavelength about that. That's incredible. <laughs> we had a fantastic interview with Yoda, recorded the whole thing. We got into his views on the prison industrial complex, uh, man versus nature. It was really, really deep, really wonderful stuff. Um, Unfortunately, for reasons we can't ourselves explain, we recorded the interview on tape and it's gone. It's just gone. So here is Yoda's sexual encounter with a cantaloupe. Mm-hmm. <laughs>